Punctum, a podcast exploring the creative practice of contemporary photographers and the bookmaking process. Coming to you from my Somerville, Massachusetts studio. I am Jay Sabella Smith, the creator and host of Got Punctum. Welcome to Got Punctum. I began my photo book group conversations to share ideas, resources, and challenges, to discuss the ways ideas move into projects and evolve into book form. A note about our format. For those listening to Got Punctum, you may access visuals we reference by following the links in our episode notes that lead to a summary on my website. Visuals are available on Teju's website and on the Mac Books website. All these links are shared in my summary and on the episode notes. We encourage our podcast listeners to join in our live conversations when possible. I created this platform to engage and sustain an interactive dialogue. My work centers on concept development and isolating the dynamic elements of creative practice. As a curator, educator, and consultant, my medium is the creative process. I am especially interested in how our own observations and awareness shows up in our work. It is why I created my concept-aware curriculum. It is because I believe as visual creatives, we have a responsibility to explore how we see and why it matters. I believe in the power of the photograph to impact individual lives and to initiate positive social change. Now to introduce my visionary guest, Teju Cole. My introduction will not include your education, experience, or accomplishments, which in your case could take up half our time. This important information is available elsewhere. I introduce you with a frame of how I see you and how I think about how you see. Teju, you are revered for your eloquence and breadth of knowledge. To incorporate your myriad vantage points into a single frame has been a formidable task. You are a voracious cultural omnivore. You have an acrobatic ability with syntax. You choreograph, orchestrate, compose, and curate across multiple disciplines. You have an art historian's facility with the canon, which until most recently is an exclusively white, male, colonial construct of what are considered, and note the term, masters of the fine arts. Yet you have a physician's hand on the pulse of that which is forming, an Afro-futuristic landscape. With golden apple of the sun, you take us into your kitchen over a five-week period as you photograph your countertop. Persimmon, lime, sprigs of thyme in a cook pot, fresh baked bread, and remnants of last night's wine become a biography. You make visible are ours. These still lives are in essence self-portraits. 
you commit to the operations of chance to photograph just what you, no intervention, no hand in the composition. You lean into, as you state, the quote, mystery of everydayness, unquote. However, in your hands and through your lens, so much more is happening than a play of light, form, and color. You animate the grammatical mood of the subjunctive, expanding it beyond doubt, wishes, judgment, obligation, and possibilities by weaving declarations of current and historical realities. You share a 1780s handwritten cookbook. You introduce us to the published poet Phyllis Wheatley Peters, named after the boat which took her from Senegal to be a slave in Boston at eight years of age. We learn of your love of the smashing pumpkins and your distaste for cauliflower alongside the political acts of hunger strikes. You transform a stainless steel sugar bowl into a metaphor of the 16th century luxury spice it contains and reflect how its procurement initiated a commodification of people consuming whole cultures and destroying lives and lands while building private wealth companies which exist and operate to this day. Those five weeks were happening at a pivotal, pivotal point in American history during the 2016 presidential elections. Your multifaceted creation of this book grew during the pandemic. You describe the past few years as, quote, this in-between season of our lives, the year of feeling buried in the dark earth like bulbs, unquote. You take all these components and do what you do best. You reflect and refract. You mirror your experience and you bend how we see by illuminating the shadows. Your ability does the precise opposite of encryption. You do not convert information into a code to protect it. You convert information to unlock it. You decode it and in so doing, set us free. I see this book as an offering, showing us how our objects, and daily choices are the essence of how we spend our hours. We share time with them. They contain us. They, like photographs, are evidence of our being. Your latest creation in image and text provides a poetics of relation. I think it began as a discipline and became a benediction. It has a similar intention to the work of Laura Latinsky, as you noted, her work being, quote, a proposition of how to go on, end quote. So in closing this introduction, my challenge has been to contain my questions and our conversation into an hour and to turn my copious notes and research into a few fine-tuned points.
I am so excited to host you, my friend. Let's begin. Wow, that's uh, safe to say. I've never had an introduction like that before. I think now I should mount the podium and receive the honorary doctorate. That was really amazing. I was like, who's this guy she's talking about? But I, one of the things I deeply appreciated about that intro <clears throat> is that it is seriously thinking alongside me with the work. And I think it's, it can be easy for a lot of people to summarize an intro into, yeah, what awards you've got and where you teach and what you did and check mark, check mark, check mark. And that's not interesting. That's just random. But to try to have a sense of what the work is up to, I think, is what we're all trying to collectively be interested in. So thank you for doing me that honor. These are unscripted conversations. And I have been thinking about how you see for a very long time, actually, before I even met you. And I've known you now for almost, I don't know, seven years, I think, because of your writing in the New York Times on photography, I literally still have the tears from some mm -hmm. of your, <laughs> because that's how I would save them. And no photo stands alone. I put that in my curriculum. You turned me on to Benjamin Bitten. I got to a concert that actually we were both at the same one and didn't know it. So I have learned so much. How I want to unpack it is to let you, let us see a little behind the curtain, so to speak. I thought there's several questions that you actually brought up in your book and they're weightier questions, frankly, and, and we'll get to them. So I wanted to start with something that wasn't quite as broad, but an opinion or a thought. And that's that looking at these still lives as autobiography. Mm. And when along the way, did you think about that? Or what do you think about that? I know that there was, I have a Louise Gluck quote where she said that poems were a form of autobiography out of context and without commentary. So I'm wondering if you think your still lives are autobiography. Yeah, every widespread cultural practice creates its own bits of language. One of the ones that we have around selfies is the hashtag no filter. And it's interesting to try to think about why people say no filter. I think it's because there's a there's a hunger for candor. Everybody actually knows that you can take a selfie and make it look really slick and more beautiful than you look in real life. And so in a bid to persuade people that this is actually the real thing, I'm actually this beautiful in real life, when the light hits just right, they say no filter. So it becomes a kind of corrective to the overcompetence of the form. I think I had something a little bit similar in mind with these photos. A little bit, no filter. We all see the food section of our newspapers. Pick up the New York Times and the food photography is great. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's much better than this. Quote, better. Every day. People really know how to photograph kitchens and food. And that's not what's going on here. And it has been interesting to see the way people engage with the images in this project, which are 
disappointing that expectation of what good food photography or good kitchen still lives look like. And I think part of the gesture that I am proposing there is no filter. You've alluded to the fact that the images are not posed. Everything that's photographed in this book is photographed just as I found it. And that is truly random, of course, because I use things as I use them and I'm not arranging them. And then it is made more complex by the fact that my partner uses the kitchen even more than I do. So things are moving around all the time, every day. And then I go into the kitchen with my camera. But over the course of making the project, I was shooting what I found, but I was trying to find in what I found some kind of rhythm. And I think I was able to find a sort of rhythmic through line in the quote, randomness. In that sense, it is a self-portrait, not just of apparently how I live, the sugar bowls and the soup spoons, but also what my intention is with the randomness that I find in how I live. I have to repeat that. My intention with the randomness in how I live. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that gets echoed in other parts of your essay. And I honestly think there's a quote at the end that I have about this, my intention with the randomness and how I live. It's really connecting to that. You made me think a lot when you were bringing up the mirroring, the Chardin's still lifes, being able to hold presence and absence at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if that, I mean, your knowledge of the layers of other fine artists working in still life, was it a challenge for you to think about still life or was it the challenge to think about not composing? Yeah, I think um, thinking about still life and thinking about that range of influences was not really so hard because I'm immersed in the history of art and I love it very much. I didn't just start liking Chardin or Cezanne last year or the Dutch masters, as you say, interesting word, or Jen Groover, Laura Litinsky, and so on. I think more difficult was committing to photographing this project in the space of five weeks, committing to doing it in color, and committing to photographing what I found there. Because what all of that did was introduce handicaps to how pretty the book could be. And I think for many artists, certainly I can speak for myself, there is a, a push and pull between the desire to make something that makes people look at it and say, wow, and the desire to make something that people look at and say, and I think the desire to create the hmm was what it means giving up that other desire mm -hmm. somewhat. Where photographers, to a certain extent, we can be like cats with dead birds, bring it or like with a rodent or something, just bring it and drop it at the feet of whoever else is in the house. And just say, look, look what I found. Look what I killed. Say, wow. And I don't think generally that people look at these photos and say, wow. I think people look at these images and say, 
what the fuck? And, but I think my approach to my work in general, to this project in particular, is something similar to what Jeanette Winterson said about literature, about how it needs to be tough because our lives are tough. So this desire to bring the work into a querying and querulous zone of experience that that detains our immediate reaction, that postpones our immediate reaction, that makes us say, and then maybe if we sit with that, something else can start to happen. So that, that was the search here. So antithetical to our normal, or not normal, so we're saturated with a lot of wow. Yes, especially since um, it is pretty comprehensively a photographic culture now. We are, we're all writers and we're all um, photographers. We're writing all the time. We're communicating all the time, especially on social media. And a lot of that communication is also happening with showing photos that we have made. And this is true of hundreds of millions of people. It's extraordinary. That's exciting, but then that's an alphabet. Now, what do you say with that alphabet, with that literary alphabet? What do you say with that visual alphabet? How do you hold the space for something else to happen? That hold the space for something else to happen. I can't write and talk at the same time fast enough. But anyway, hold the space for something else to happen makes me think of jazz and makes me think of you. And that's what I think happens here, that you've got this masterful command of a lot of disciplines. And I think this book in particular gives us a space for something else to happen. I think it's a real step in that. It's interesting, this quote that I have uh, shared on our PDF, I cannot photograph the document of civilization without being reflected in it. I'd love for you to talk about this and I'll tell you where I went with this or where I found a lot of foundation for how I think about this. So let me ask you to unpack it and then I'll, I'll bring in my foundation. Okay, this quotation actually refers directly to, let's say, to the uh, previous image. Mm -hmm. Uh, What people might not know is that the book unfolds as a sequence of images interspersed with this 18th century cookbook. Uh, So the photos I took in my kitchen are presented in another gesture, what I call hiding the hand. I have also removed my, some of my own intentionality by showing the photos chronologically. Mm -hmm. So they are actually in the order in which they were taken. They were selected from all the photos I took, but they're in strict chronological order. So the photos are in chronological order over the five weeks leading up to the election interspersed by these other pages that we can talk about later. And then at the end comes the text. So unlike what I did with Blind Spot, which was image, text, image, text all the way through, that kind of antiphonal organization. This one is a work in two parts, images and then text, a long 
15,000 word. But this particular quotation, so if you go back to the earlier picture, the quotation talks to the picture because the reflection it's talking about is my reflection, hardly visible in this picture, a little bit more visible in some others, in that stainless steel sugar bowl, which because of this project, we just have things in our house and we forget, where, when did this one show up? How, when did I get this one? And so each thing had to be solved. And this sugar bowl was something I bought as an accessory to an espresso set that I bought in Florence in 2013. And you always think, oh, I'm going to buy an espresso set because I need one. Never used that espresso. I don't even have an espresso machine, but I use the sugar bowl every day. Now the line... So we can now go back to the text. I cannot photograph the document of civilization without being reflected in it. Is an intertextual reference to, I think it was Benjamin, who said something like, there's no document of civilization that is not also evidence of brutality. Something like that. I'm mm -hmm. misquoting him, but that's the general sense of it. This is a very helpful thought for me because I am surrounded by uh, fine things and scholars and brilliant people and institutions that very much believe themselves to be some kind of apex of Western civilization. And I don't go in for all of that bullshit. I understand what I'm looking at, but I also know that it's built on extraction and on cruelty. So that when I con contemplate a sugar bowl, part of my responsibility as an ethically interested human being upon the earth is to say, what is sugar? And why is it so cheap? And why do we all have it? And then to look into that. So this became a kind of an extra beat to Benjamin's idea which is when I photograph the document of civilization, I'm thinking about what my part is in it. I'm employed at the oldest corporation in the Western Hemisphere. Put that in your sugar bowl. We're all, we're all implicated in thinking about these histories of how present wealth was built on past and, alas, present acts of uh, dispossession. I know when you mentioned the quote about civilization, and I'm not sure if it was brutality or barbarism, but... Yeah, I think yeah. maybe it was barbarism, exactly. Yeah, but then I also think about, like, honestly, quotes float in my head from your essay where you say everything is expensive to someone. That kind of lens is what, what you're so able to do. So what I want to do is just share a little of the frame that really is helping me think about how you see and actually what you're doing. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Tina M. Kemp's book, of course. Uh, The Black Gaze. Yeah, okay. just came out uh, this year, Artists Changing How We See. And this was such a helpful guide for me. And I'm just going to quote her because this is what she's talking about in this book. She's talking about particular contemporary Black artists. And this is a quote, soliciting visceral responses to the visualization of Black precarity, breaking through and alongside the suffering and joy of Black life now. She writes of artists who challenge the fundamental disparity that defines the dominant viewing practice, the fact that Blackness is the elsewhere or nowhere of whiteness. 
And finally, a black gaze that shifts the optics of looking at to a politics of looking with, through and alongside one another. It is a gaze that requires effort and exertion. And I think you nailed that with this book. It isn't easy. It isn't a walk in the park or a day in your kitchen. And you bend how we see. I bet there's a lot of people are going to be looking at their sugar bowls a little differently. And I hope so. And do the same with salt while you're at it. That's very kind. So I, I know Tina Camp's book. And in fact, I taught it in the fall. I assigned it in my words and photographs course, which um, I was excited to design and teach for the first time. Beautiful. Yeah, I think the book is powerful, insightful, academic, but elegant. Mm-hmm. And brings sophisticated readings of a number of powerful contemporary American artists, Khalil Joseph, Arthur J. Yeah, and blanking it, Dina Lawson, many people in, a, in quite an interesting way. So it was good to sit with that text. What you quoted there, I'll, I'll be controversial for just a second, for me was also exemplary of one of the places in which I parted ways slightly with Tina Camp, and that was in the, in, in a funny way, I parted ways with her, and yet I could see what she was doing, and I thought it was fine for her book and for her project. Mm. But in the constant modification of everything is Black, the assertion, the Black artist, the Black gaze, and so on, i not as interested in being modified by that. I'm figuring it out. But I'm a Black artist and people who don't like that obviously just have to deal with it. (laughs) And uh, we can sit in that discomfort together because I'm not going anywhere. And yet I don't want everything I do to be modified through the lens of Blackness because I don't want everything I do to be positioned by the reality of racism or by the notion that I am somehow addressing the hostility of unfriendly whites or the compassion of ethical white. Everything just be centered on what white people want. Circular. So for me to assert a position in my work where many different kinds of things belong, including blackness, but that does not need to be a dominant lens. It's a reality. We're not talking about being post-racial. And yet I often try to think about how to, on the one hand, be difficult. I'm very interested in that. And on the other hand, I cannot go through life with a raised fist all the time. Mm. Because that's also exhausting. I really appreciate you bringing out that point. And it makes me think of something that came through in your book in the discussion on opacity. That's right. I thought that was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. That was glissant. Yeah, right? that was, with that the was, poetics that was, of relation. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, that is absolutely at the core of it. And I appreciated the gesture you made in the introduction when you were talking about Phyllis Whitley Peters. And you talked about her as a poet. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how she was taken from home in Senegal at the age of eight. 
okay, anybody who's listening to you can now do the math and say, oh, this was a black woman poet in the 18th century, mm-hmm. but you did not foreground her as she's not a poet. She's a black woman poet. Mm-hmm. No, you said she's a poet, the published poet. Now here are the conditions. And then we fill in that information. And I think they're just way of not seeking to constantly other, mm-hmm. even though that information is relevant, there are ways sometimes there's an ethical responsibility there also to withhold information in a way that other kinds of thinking can then happen before that thinking gets foreclosed by, oh, it's a black woman. Okay. I know how I'm supposed to think about this. Maybe you don't because we don't introduce Cezanne as a white male painter. (laughs) As if his work was about whiteness and maleness, which by the way, it is, but it's not only about that either. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. When you brought up, I loved the term that was rolled around opacity and that idea that it opacity doesn't let light through. So this way of presenting that it lets light through, that's where the refraction Uh, analogy came to me about you because of this idea of light bends and light moves differently through cold water or hot water. And this idea of being able to keep that openness, that is is fascinating. And one of my later questions was going to be, are we capable of suspending judgment and acknowledging opacity? That's the goal. And it's interesting, right? You, you get pushback. I'm sure. Well, I'm, that's, yeah. that's right. Because I think people do get comfortable with discourse needing to be a particular way. One of the gestures that happens in the text of this book has to do with rethinking a, a section of the canon that's relevant to the subject, right? About hunger, about oppression, about food, about slavery, and so on. But one of the things I do in this essay is that each time a canonical figure comes up, I think the reader at some point starts to think, uh-oh, when's the other shoe going to drop? But I think this is the flip side of opacity. It's that when we're talking about, let's say, minoritized persons who are not necessarily canonical yet, or canonical at all, there's more to their story and you could get some of it. You might not get all of it. It's worth thinking with. Meanwhile, when we are thinking about canonical figures, there's more to their story in a different way. There are things that have been made obscure that should maybe be made a bit more translucent. Mm -hmm. So that when I speak about figures I admire, Louis Gluck or J.M. Coetzee, or very notably Giorgio Morandi and John Cage, in each of those instances, there's an oh moment, Mm -hmm. which I'm not saying those moments came up because I'm black, but I am saying that I've not seen anybody else write about those moments Mm -hmm. because they accepted these as canonical figures and they did not think to address Morandi's fascism. They did not think to address John Cage's racism and so on. And as what I did with the arc of that text was to say that I don't have to worship John Cage to understand that there's something in his work that can be very helpful to me. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or is that I can continue to find John Cage immensely fascinating and charming. And on the other hand, recognize that he's an idiot for dismissing John Coltrane. <laughs> That's, that shouldn't be too complicated. It's anybody who dismisses John Coltrane is an idiot, but he was, he was transiently idiotic, mm-hmm. let's say, when it came mm-hmm. to black music and jazz. And then he was a genius in other parts of his life. Lord knows we don't like to live with ambiguity. We like things very, no pun intended, black and white. That's right. He's bad. And so I did not want to undertake this exercise of saying, ah, you thought you liked Morandi, but I'm Mm going to tell you why not to, because he was in cahoots with Mussolini. No, I'm just curious about why people who have written about Morandi have not written about how much advantage he got from his fascist connections. But then to take the step beyond that and not do some silly thing of canceling Morandi, but of saying, okay, let's sit with that not good. What yeah. can those paintings still tell us? What did the paintings do through Morandi that survives his own lack of personal courage, mm-hmm. his own lack of personal ethics that allowed him to take a position um, in the art school because he was praising the fascists? Mm-hmm. Yeah, holding that complexity. You do the same with Caravaggio. In black paper. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I'm not, I'm not giving up Caravaggio. I'm not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Alas, I need him. <laughs> Here's to complex people and the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah. This gives the image that we're looking at now gives a sense of how you, when you came to your essay, which is the only numbered pages, how you interspersed it with other little images. I got a kick out of when you photographed the guy on the ladder in Cambridge. <laughs> That's right. That was rather fun. So there's a couple of more quotes and slides to just move us through. I loved this. Again, this is Glissant who gave us the opacity. You share in the unknown with the others whom you have yet to know. And that's what I think you do is there was a a word you used where you don't want to be modified and that there's a translucence that you want to give. So it's like bringing light into other situations and making it that grayscale. The grayscale is large and there's a lot of stops on it, but we tend to keep wanting to go on these two other ends, which are actually so false. There's nothing that's black and white. There's nothing that's a straight line. So being able to to hold that together, you brought it up to me, which I thought was fascinating how you wove when you were talking about Chris Killip's work and that this is the kind of stuff that you do that I don't know how you do it and I don't know how your mind works like this and you end up causing my mind to go into like all kinds of tailspins, Mm -hmm. which is a good thing, but a, a lot is when you realize that one of your favorite photographs of Chris's was actually taken days after Bobby Sands died in Mm -hmm. Ireland because of his work with the IRA, the hunger strike. Like that, when you eliminate something like that, I'm like, how the hell did you find that out? Or what led one thing to the other? Like that, that, those kind of things blow my mind. So that's very kind of you. I think what it is to constantly be searching Mm -hmm. and when you find something to make a note of it and then in the writing process to do the necessary reverse engineering Mm -hmm. 
mm. so that when you arrive somewhere, it seems as if, wow, that's strange that you arrived there, but that's actually where you started and you built the thing up to there. So that's that photograph by Chris Killett. It's even stranger than that. The photograph was made the day that Bobby Sands died and, and Chris Killip died while I was working on this. And yeah, I think in making any project for me, any work comes out of an attitude, not of, not simply of intentionality, but an attitude of receptivity. It's about having your antenna up. You don't decide ahead of time, everything that's going to be in the work, but you actually open yourself up to what's going to come. I try to, I try to be like a low lying field sometimes and let myself be flooded by life, you know? And then when that water pulls away, let's look at the debris. So the receptivity I think is very important because I think what every project I've had, whether written or photographed has in common is that every single one of them bears features of things that happen in the making of it, incorporated accidents, elements of chance that then get built into the structure of what was being made. Somebody pushes you and then while you're falling, you make it look like a dance move. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. You're talking about creativity there and something that I certainly echo in asking people as they're working on projects to stop thinking product and think process and the product will take care of itself. Be in conversation with your work and allow for those accidents and listen. Be like another thing I'm constantly talking about is listen to your work. It has, it's talking to you. It has something to say. We're so domineering over that. And it is scary. You don't know, like you said, flooded. It's not fun to feel like you're like gasping for breath. But if you have the faith that the water is going to recede and this debris is going to, to give us something. What's interesting is a couple of things before we open to questions that I know people want to know about the bookmaking and this idea that you made the decision to put the images in chronological order, but this whole idea of, I remember reading, I think it was when you were being interviewed for the Neiman Foundation and someone was really trying to understand your writing and you talked about how long an essay was for how many pieces you might weave into it. And so this whole idea of building, how would you translate that or can you translate that to photography? What do you do in that idea of juxtaposition or repetition? Yeah, in the photograph and in sequencing. Each one just has its own requirement. Each project is different. Mm -hmm. I think about the three photo books so far, Blind Spot, Fernvey, and Golden Apple of the Sun. And they're all so different. They're all recognizably mine, but they're, and they're all book length. But what is book length? Golden Apple of the Sun Let's just say principal photography on it and the drafting of the essay, all of that is a work of six weeks. And then, of course, several months shaping things and prep for publication. Fernvey was five years of photograph, photography and sequencing and constantly returning to Switzerland. So I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. Mm -hmm. The one thing I do try to be cognizant of 
is that while I am committed to being difficult, difficult in the sense of attempting to make work that's worthy of our predicament. On the other hand, I I am very, I think my one principal guide for me is that I'm very wary of bullshitting myself, of taking advantage of opportunity in a kind of People ask me, oh, do you have anything? We'll publish it. If people will publish, oh, just give us any 1,000 words, we'll publish it. But I don't want to do that. Mm. If it doesn't satisfy me, we're not publishing it. And for it to satisfy me, I know it's going to take a lot of time to write it. And therefore, I'm not going to do it because I don't have a lot of time to commit to this. Or, and the same is true of the... Oh, I'm more, I'm a little bit more visible in the sugar bowl on the left. I was going to say we're back to that. Yeah. All the way on the left. I think Uh, honestly, we have one more image of your, you in the sugar bowl. It's really dark, but I still think that we see you in it too. Yeah. I think that's a guide for me. Some internal, always querying, is this good enough? Is this serious? Is this, is it, is this thought through? I don't know. I don't want to deceive myself and I don't want to deceive others. It does not mean that they're going to like what I do. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, I need to know that I wrestled with it. I need to know what kinds of discomfort I inculcated into the work and that there's intentionality in that. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now if somebody um, turns around and just looks at the stuff and says, he just actually doesn't know how to photograph kitchens, <laughs> that's fine as long as I've actually done my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is the engine for me is if I've done my due diligence, then I'm good. So, for example, it proposes the question, what, what is my next photo project? And the answer is, I actually don't know. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know. I have a lot of photos and I have some ideas, but I don't know at what point it starts to click in. That could be a matter of six months and it could be a matter of three years. It's helpful, I think, for people to know that you've had five years incubation. I often talk about sitting on eggs, like not everything is ready to be hatched. And this idea of being able to hold on. I wanted to ask you. Oh, I could also say, sorry to interrupt, but for Golden Apple of the Sun, for the year and a half of the pandemic leading to the beginning of photographing Golden Apple of the Sun, that year and a half of of quarantine, I was photographing every day. Hmm. So there was... So that's not part of the project, but it's part of the project. I was searching. Mm. I was actually going out every day and taking walks and photographing almost every day. And there were a lot of nice pictures. But when the project began, you alluded to jazz. It's not as if the jazz musician is just making it up, but she's actually been practicing for years so that she can, quote, make it up. Exactly. Yeah, it's the, yes. It's having all the facility to then be able to break all the rules and find your way. But I also appreciate that this idea, the engine being doing your due diligence. You don't have to please anyone. You have to be engaged in what it is that you're doing. 
results. The rest, it isn't for the results. Like think <laughs> you see that, I think you see that you, that a lot of people are hearing what you are saying. Oh yeah. Or, it's nice or, to please a few people, but don't try to please too many people. That can be yeah. Yeah. Or frankly, repeat. I've certainly followed and seen enough artists that cannot get out of what has been a success. And that's problematic too. I have to ask you one question before we uh, open up. And that is, you really kept me guessing and I loved it and didn't understand it until the very, very end when you gave thank yous and you thanked the yous to whom you were speaking. Because I remember going through and at one point you said, I haven't been hungry since we met. And I'm like, is he talking to Karen? And then, and so I was just, and then you brought it up again. And then I'm like, okay, these aren't all her. So could you just talk about that? I thought that was a really interesting Mm. thread. Yeah, I think that while I was trying to subtly do things I had not done before in photography in this project, and there was a kind of search going on then, I also think that in the text, I was trying to find new forms of flexibility in my approach to writing prose. I was trying to learn. I was trying to do new things. I was trying to write a kind of text I would not have been able to write five years ago. So there was an intentionality to to grow. Really, the only two things I wrote last year were the essay for this and the, I guess not last, was it last year? Jeez, no. It was was late 2020. Time doesn't exist. Everything has blurred together. But in September, I wrote this essay about Caravaggio. And in October and November, I wrote this essay of Golden Apple of the Sun. Two very long essays, but two essays in which I really was very intent on getting to the next stage in my writing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I introduced in Golden, Golden Apple of the Sun was the use of this mobile you, this form of address, parts of the text that we're talking to an unnamed you. But that you, contextually, you understood that it started to migrate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the yous spoken about in the text is also Chris Killip. Other people, members of my family, my mm-hmm. friends, it, it is a kind of, it's almost like playing with depth of field, manually. Mm-hmm focusing so that then something becomes crisp in the distance that we had not noticed before. And then it drops out again. It, it was a way of inviting the reader into the way that my mind works, but also to say to the reader, you're invited to read this text or this section of this text, but isn't it interesting that you're not the person being addressed? You're you, we can read a text and think it's talking to us. And then you realize, oh, it's talking to somebody else, but you've been given the privilege of overhearing it. Mm-hmm. And how unlinear it is, which is, again, making for that openness, right? Making for that translucence. It's, oh, I can't put a structure on it because there isn't one. I have to open it up. I am so tempted. There is something I came across that I'd love to share. Have you ever seen... There's a little book, I think University of Chicago maybe did this. So it's the history of shadow. It's called Shadow in Nature, Life and Art, William Vaughn. And Deb Hemley gave me this for our holiday. And because 
we talk about these things and I think how you talk about shadow. And I thought this was really illuminating. It's an awesome book in terms of how many ways in which it speaks of things. It does go into Caravaggio and cast shadow, but this is about a cultural way of looking at light. And I just want to end with this because this quote is amazing. It was from a Japanese novelist, Junashiro Tanazake. Yeah. And it's called In Praise of Shadows, which was written in 1930. So you will hear the language of 1930. But this is the quote talking about views from the East in praise of shadows. We Orientals seek our satisfactions in whatever surroundings we happen to find ourselves to content ourselves with things as they are. And so darkness causes us no discontent. We resign ourselves to it as inevitable. If light is scarce, then light is scarce. We will immerse ourselves in the darkness and there discover its own particular beauty. But the progressive Westerner is determined always to better his lot from candle to oil lamp, oil lamp to gaslight to electric light. His quest for a brighter light never ceases. He spares no pains to eradicate even the minutest shadow, end quote. And I thought, wow, this is the, this is, I I think this is a declaration of the wows. We chase the wows and we don't have enough. So thank you. I think you've got an audience of people wanting to go. And I have a lot more questions, but I promised I'd open. So I'm going to, and let me just show the last quote, because I got a big kick out of this. I love this particular image. And I actually started to think about which way your kitchen faces. And I mm-hmm. think it faces south because you get morning and afternoon light. Um, no. Or yeah. southeast. Right. I'm not no, sure. Yeah, because I was looking at the times and the light. But I loved this, that you led me to Smashing Pumpkins and to Tonight and mm. to Tabitha Soren, who I interviewed last week. And frankly, I was reading your book. Okay, Big Confession. <laughs> didn't follow MTV, didn't know she was on it. And I knew MTV, but it was like, joking. I am not joking. I am not. Big star of my youth. Crazy, but true and embarrassing, but true. And I wrote to her, I was like, and man, was I glad that I found out from you before I interviewed her without knowing. But anyway, I did. I said, I learned of Tashu Gull's book. And I actually, I've had a few lives. And when I lived in New York, I worked at MTV. I didn't, they were a client when I was, yeah. So I used to go to there. So I had a completely different orientation to MTV than Tabitha. Talking about 1996. And Mm -hmm. if my 1996 self could have imagined that, you know, Tabitha saw it. Forget it. I can't even go into it. Let me retain my composure. These were the MTV VJs. This was the apex of cool. John Stewart, Kurt Loder. Yeah, we were plugged in. Gen X, we're much maligned and ignored, but we exist. Gen X what? Truther. Oh, I love it. You have really, I love your taste in music and how eclectic it is. And then for me to go into looking at tonight in the lyrics, and I just love this, believe in the resolute urgency of now. And uh, I think that's a great note for us to end on. And I'm going to stop sharing my screen and we can let people interact with you. And I swear I have four other pages 
we didn't even touch. I, I, I believe this. Thank you so much, Sib. It's been a pleasure. So I really believe that for everyone, not just for artists, the core of the thing is to understand that you're human, you have worth, and that you're interesting, and that patient time spent with yourself, patient time spent making, patient time spent attending is the name of the game. And I think in the art realm, we see a lot of anxious product, but just the ability to sit with yourself and follow the thought, follow the investigation, to have an attentive attitude to life, to say to yourself, it's okay to be slow. It's okay to be earnest. It's okay to be weird. It's okay if other people don't understand. It's even okay if somebody says, I'm disappointed in you. It's okay. I, I think that's a thought I would like to leave people with. It's okay to go your own way, actually. It's not the extreme version that Milton Babbitt, American composer of the mid-20th century, so up in his head with his avant-garde stuff, he wrote a notorious essay called Who Cares If You Listen? Okay, that, that's a bit obnoxious for a Princeton University professor of music to say. So that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is who is listening should first and foremost be you. And then the invitation to others can emerge out of the invitation you've already made to yourself to listen to what you're doing so that it's not a cat bringing in every bit of every dead animal from outside, something a bit more considered. From the heart, it goes to the heart. How strange, quoting Beethoven to finish up, but he said it, what can I say? From the heart, it must to the heart go. All right. I think I can stop there. Teju, thank you so much for this time and your thoughts and your ability to listen heartily and attend and then invite. Thank you so much. It's been nice to be with you, Sib, and with everybody here, thank you all for your generosity and for thinking through this uh, work with me. And uh, thank everybody for the collective work that we're doing as we um, move through the hard times. But thank you, Sib, for making also a space for photography and for a place where we can hold what needs to be held and your forum, which contains what needs containing. So I'm deeply grateful to you. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Take care. Take care all. Bye-bye.